Welcome to the pulse that moves the triangle world today. This one-size-fits-all broadcast is a vibrant collection of stories, medical breakthroughs, helpful tips, what's trending, events, and boundless other adventures. It's a conversation pit of comedians, politicians, authors, chefs, sports figures, experts, the common and the uncommon. Here's the host of Triangle 411, Mary Inspreffer. Hi, friends. So here we go again, another COVID intrusion into our lives. At least this time, it may be a good one. It is the vaccine. But what's it all about, Alfie? Must I get it to survive? How do I register to receive it? Is it safe? Although the COVID-19 vaccines were developed quickly, they were built upon years of working in developing vaccines for similar viruses. So there's that. Additionally, more than 70,000 people participated in clinical trials for two vaccines to see if they are safe and effective. To date, the vaccines are said to be nearly 95% effective in preventing COVID-19 with little safety concerns and temporary reactions such as swelling from the injection, tiredness, or feeling poorly for a few days. But even though the vaccine may be a positive, it is still another what-you-never-wanted-to-know-about-COVID discourse, lecture, report, oration, and overall master's degree required education on what the heck do we do now. Here to help us digest the data and answer all your questions about the vaccine is Dr. Jason Wittes from the Wake County Government Health Clinic's Human Services. Welcome, Jason. Hi, thanks for having me. I will introduce the segments on different distribution phases farther down in the show, but for now, let's talk nitty-gritty, starting with how the vaccine works. Like, does the shot actually give us COVID? No, the vaccines that we have here, um, and pretty much any vaccine that would be approved, do not have risk of giving any person COVID. So the vaccine candidates that are approved here in the United States uh, use mRNA technology. So it's a small fragment of mRNA that rep, um, that will replicate the spike protein, so those little spikes that you see on the outside of an image of COVID-19, and basically teaches your body to recognize that the pathogen, when it enters into your body, that it doesn't belong there, generates an immune response and kicks out the virus, if you will. So I, I like to use a, a bouncer um, you know, description. So the mRNA is introduced, your body learns what it looks like, and then when it sees another spike protein enter your body that resembles, that is COVID-19, it kicks it out of your body. Bounce is a good way to put that. And, you know, it's good to know we're not actually, because a lot of vaccines, you have to get a little bit of the the, the actual disease. So that's great. Yep. And um, also, it, it is a pretty scary picture that they show. Right. It's so, so gross. Um, okay, now there's two vaccines so far, Pfizer and Moderna. What are the pros and cons between the two as far as toleration, availability, number of doses? Sure. So the, the, the two that are available are Pfizer and Moderna. Pfizer was approved mid-December and Moderna's was approved a week after, both under emergency use authorizations. 
Um, Pfizer's and Moderna's are both very similar in terms of overall efficacy. Pfizer is around 95% effective after two doses, whereas Moderna is around 94.1% effective. They're both studied across multiple um, different demographics, such as age, race, um, gender, and with proven efficacy across the board, across all those demographics. So really good outcomes there. The Pfizer product requires ultra-low cold frozen storage. So that's the negative 94 degrees um, that you see and needs to be reconstituted and requires two doses around 21 days apart. So a minimum of 21 days between the first dose and the second dose. The Moderna product is kept at normal frozen temperature, freezer temperature, um, and does not need to be reconstituted and is available um, in a two-dose series 28 days apart. So that's another key thing to remember with the vaccine candidates is that you need both doses for it to actually reach that 95% or 94% efficacy. And for the Pfizer product, because that's what we have here at Wake County currently, um, it takes 35 days from the first dose. So 21, or I'm sorry, 28 days from the first dose. So you get your first dose, you wait 21 days, then you get your second dose, and then seven days after your second dose, you've reached that 95% efficacy. Um, for us here in the county, and it looks like mostly across the state, we've been receiving much larger volumes of the Pfizer vaccine product. So even though there's a lot more logistical challenges to it, the Pfizer vaccine product ships in 975 doses per per pizza tray is what they call it. It looks like a little pizza tray, and you can receive up to five trays per box, and that's all dependent on how many the state has allocated for your hospital system or local health department. Okay. So how much will the COVID-19 vaccination cost a person? So there is no cost at all to the end, end recipient of the vaccine. So here at the county, we are not currently charging for any insurance or administration fees, there may be some administration fees at some other um, outlying facilities in the future, especially as the vaccine becomes more aware, but they are covered either under your insurance or covered by the federal government. So there will never be a cost to people in Wake County or that's, across the United States. That's good. That's good to know. And and I, and I do want to talk across the United States because we have a lot of listeners outside of Wake County, but, um, okay, yeah, we'll bring that home. But, uh, yeah, so, so that's good news. Yeah. No, no barriers there for costs, which is usually when you talk healthcare, that's a, that's a barrier to consider. Exactly. For a lot of people. So that's good. Correct. Even, even playing field here. So that's good. Right. Um, so where is a person likely to receive the shot? So, in the current phasing that we're in, the the only places where you can receive it is at a hospital system that's an approved COVID-19 vaccine provider or your local health department. In Beginning this week in the state of North Carolina, providers are able to enroll. So your local primary care physician or urgent care is able to enroll as a provider. And if we have extra doses, we can transfer doses to those facilities in order to administer to group 1B, if you will, so 75 or older. Um, but currently, with healthcare workers, it's only at the hospital system or at your local health department. In the future, I believe it's going to be pretty much anywhere just like a flu shot. So your local pharmacy, um, urgent care, your doctor's office. But as allocation and more doses become available, it'll be more widely available in the community. Okay. And should people be, you know, should people start registering somewhere or getting on some kind of list? So, yes. So, exactly. So, here in Wake County, um, and every county is doing it differently, um, 
we have a website. So at the covid19.wakegov.com forward slash vaccine is where you can find out what phase we're in, how to register, um, how to get your name on a list. So especially when group 1A, so healthcare workers who are actively fighting COVID and exposed to COVID, as well as long-term care staff and residents. Long-term care staff and residents are being handled by, the vast majority are being handled by the federal pharmacy plan, which is working with um, pharmacy chains throughout the, the country to have pharmacists and pharmacy team members go into local um, long-term care facilities and vaccinate. So those people would not have to register with us. They've already, those facilities have registered at the federal level and the states are helping roll out that plan. But for local healthcare workers who meet the definition of phase 1A, um, you know, direct patient care with COVID-19 patients, they sent us a list. We uploaded their name to the state CVMS system and we sent them an appointment scheduling tool for them to schedule an appointment with us. So they'll register on both sites. Eventually, that state system will also have a scheduling tool built in. So it would be one stop for everyone to go. And that's the same plan moving forward into group 1B next week. Okay. So, so that's a little bit confusing as far yeah. as like just for the average bear. So like, right. I, you for know, the I average... understand the hospital and the nursing homes, th- th- that aside, I'm just saying, you know, yeah. uh, you know, the average Joe out there, whether they're either like in the, let's say past even the 75, uh, 75 year old phase where they just want to register. I mean, is that happening yet? I I thought it wasn't even happening yet. So where, so you're referring specifically to anyone 75 or older? Is uh, that, is that your question? No, no, not 75 or older, but like the next phase after that, like sure. the 65 yes. and then uh, so people you're, with you're the abs- health conditions. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We are not pre-registering anyone at this time. So the way the system works is that once we are in a current phase or group in that phase, that is when we are um using all tools of media to refer people to our website or to our call center, which will be active on on Tuesday, the 19th, to go online and register, schedule your appointment, complete your pre-health screening, and things like that. But in later phases, um, we don't have the capacity and uh, we don't have the doses, frankly, the allocations from the state at this point to pre-register and get people on schedules for you know weeks or months from now. So it's a, unfortunately, it's a patience and timing um, effort um, and having to, you know, keep an eye out with the news and with our website um, to alert people when we're moving into certain phases so they can go online, attest that they are in those groups. If it's a working situation or underlying health condition, um, you know, self-attestation and then scheduling their appointment that way. Okay. So that's on hold right now and it may vary from state to state, but eventually you're going to want to go there with a primary care physician or something and register. And then when your time comes, how, how are you contacted to say, okay, come on in for it? So for us, it's a push notification via email or text message or phone call, depending on your preference of how you set up your account. Um, I, but I can't speak to outside, mm-hmm. um, you know, partners or, or, prim- or primary care pri- providers in the future. Mm-hmm. Hospital systems the same way, so through their EHR system. So um, UNC or Wake Med they, or Duke, they have their own um, 
you know, EMR system that you normally would use to interface with the healthcare system. And that's how they're communicating with patients. Mm, okay. So, yeah. So it's pretty, it's a pretty broad range, it sounds like, and, and vary from county to county and state to state. Right. So, And that's why when the state system, this is called the CVMS, the COVID vaccine management system, once that is updated properly, um, to have all these features that we're discussing, you'll be able to go online and actually self-register. And what you attest to will place you in your appropriate group and phase. And then that system will contact you when it's time for you to make your appointment and come in. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, um, so we talk a lot about people with chronic health conditions being at the top of the list as they should be. What are some of the chronic conditions we're talking about? So people know if they have X versus Y, they qualify or not. Sure. So in North Carolina, that would be people in phase two. Group two is when we're going to first start seeing people with underlying severe COVID risk, or I'm sorry, risks associated with COVID that are health conditions, right? So cancer, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, serious heart conditions, sickle cell disease, type two diabetes, um, and that's among others. And that's regardless of their living situation, right? So, um, so those are very specific underlying health conditions that have proven to to increase morbidity and mortality in patients regardless of age. So even if you're 30 and not in one of these 75 Correct. or older groups, you can get the vaccine if you have those exactly. conditions. Okay. Yes, ma'am. All right. And, 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 and here's an interesting thing, because, you know, a lot of people are just like, they just can't wait and they're rushing out to get it and try and get on list, but others are reluctant to take the vaccination. Why do you think that is? I think anything new, especially healthcare related, is um, you know, no one wants to necessarily be first in line to get it. So I volunteered here. I had to put my money where my mouth is, if you if you will, and I you know said as long as the data shows that it's a safe and effective vaccine, I would be first in line to get it. The data showed that, and I was first in line to get it. Now, as a pharmacist, we have to do lots of time counseling on medications and starting starting letting patients know what the side effects are and how to mitigate them and what to be aware of. So being as transparent as possible. I also think that unfortunately the vaccine process and the whole COVID response has been over-politicized where it should not have been. It's just a, a medical and public health response. So I think those are all things that are, are working against us. Um, and there's also been a large, you know, anti-vax sentiment um, from a certain segment of the population as well. Um, there's also been historic, um, you know, racism and, and s- systemic racism that's that's affected certain populations and historically marginalized populations that want to receive the vaccine because of things that were conducted um, years ago against certain populations, um, you know, with lack of regard from a medical standpoint. So, you know, I understand and recognize those those that resistance there, um, and we're working with local groups to make sure that we address those. and And maybe it's meeting people. You know, maybe having something at the local health department or a government building might not be the best place to conduct a vaccine campaign. So, is it a drive-through? Is it meeting people in their local, um, you know, on-site uh, places that they normally would gather? Is it in a park? What does that look like, and what will make people feel comfortable getting the vaccine? Is it just having our education in multiple languages? Um, you know, if something's only put out in English and English is not your first language, how are you going to learn and educate yourself about the vaccine? So it's a definitely multi-pronged approach, and we're working with our comms team 
And there's information coming out at every level, federal, state, local, to make sure that, that we get the job done. But us as the locals who are putting shots in arms, that's that's our job to make sure that we educate as best as possible and let people and just be as trans- transparent as possible. All very good points. And um, there's something I want to grab on that. But first, you mentioned, you know, it was you felt it was safe and the, the you know all the testing and everything that was done but what about someone who's concerned about you know cuz right now it seems safe but what if like a year or two from now there's some kind of complication from the vaccine how do you uh you know pacify that thought in some folks mind sure so most vaccines, you're going to see a reaction very quickly, right? So that's what you've seen a lot of cases of anaphylaxis. And when I say a lot, I mean a handful of anaphylaxis throughout the world with people receiving vaccine. So having an anaphylactic reaction and having um, a history of anaphylactic reaction is what puts you at a higher risk of having that kind of side, side effect or adverse event. Long-term side effects for most vaccines are only studied um, for, for initial safety, the same length of time that, that this vaccine was studied for. So that two month to three month time frame and then longer studies are happening because you're not going to find that one in a million, one in 10 million adverse event, um, through normal drug approval process. That's really what the phase four clinical trials are for. Um, and that's once the mark, once the product is released to market, they're constantly doing safety surveillance to make sure is there that needle in a haystack because one in a million is still a lot of people in the United States. It's still a lot of people worldwide. But when you're only testing and having safety, you know, on 70,000 people or 35,000 people in a trial, the the study is not large enough to discover that one in a million side effect. So knowing that, sharing that, but saying the odds of that happening are very slim to none because of what we know how vaccines work. mRNA vaccines have been out for a while. This, while these are the first to approve vaccines for that, the technology is not new. It's been studied for a while. I think it's been underfunded um, for mRNA specifically, and I'm I'm really happy to see that they are approved and funding is going to to them, because I really think that in the future, mRNA vaccines are going to be the future of our vaccine technology, and I do predict. Um, and I hope in my lifetime that we see a universal flu vaccine because that is what the, the basis of mRNA tech technology was being used for to try and develop was a, was a universal flu vaccine. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we talk about this where some people are, are, you know, worried to get it or not, but there's been a lot out there lately. I just wanted to get your thoughts on it where it may not be a choice for, for some different things. Like for example, some countries are talking about, not allowing you into their country unless you have proof of a vaccination. Um, in fact, a lot of companies are developing what what they're referring to as health passports of sorts, showing proof right. of the vaccination. Uh, your thoughts on that? I mean that that existed prior to so prior to COVID. So there were several countries where there were vaccine preventable diseases, and they required you to have the vaccine. Most notably, yellow fever. So yellow fever. Was a vaccine preventable? Is a vaccine preventable disease? And before you enter certain countries, especially in the southern hemisphere, you need to have evidence of that in your passport. So, my wife and I love to travel. I've never had a yellow fever vaccine because I've never been to a country that requires it. My wife has, so she has in her passport a yellow fever um, sticker or stamp. I, you know, I don't know off the top of my head what it looks like, but that I, I think whether it's digital or in your passport. Um, I think a digital solution would be the easiest solution because paper gets lost pretty quickly. Um, 
I do think in the short while that that's going to be something that some countries are going to require. Um, I don't know if the United States will be one of those countries, but um, I do foresee that as allowing you um, a more free travel, if you will, if you're vaccinated. Um, I still think that you're going to require and locations are going to require you not only to have the vaccine, but you're also still going to have to get that COVID test within three days prior to arrival. So I think it's going to be a combination of the two. Um, and as more people get vaccinated and as herd immunity is achieved, um, I think some of those restrictions might lessen up. Okay. This question is for my daughter, Jesse. <laughs> if you don't like needles, is there any <laughs> other way to receive the COVID-19 vaccine? Not at this time. All, all the vaccines are uh, you know, via intramuscular uh, injection that we have now. We are using a small needle, the small field that we can. Um, so it's pretty painless, similar to a, um, a flu shot. Um, but we have not seen any of the like flu mist nasal, nasal uh, vaccine candidates mm -hmm. at this time. There are some in development that I've seen, but not close to approval. Okay. Should children get the vaccine? Children at this time, it is not recommended. Um, the drugs are not approved for anyone under 16, but they are, um, I would imagine that they will be approved um, in the future. So that way when it's time to address children getting vaccinated, that they will be approved. Uh, similar to how ACOG came out and announced that it's safe for, the vaccine is safe for pregnant and breastfeeding women. So I think more information will come about that um, soon. Uh, so I'm sorry, did you just say the vaccine is safe for pregnancy or those trying to conceive? Correct. And ACOG, which is the official group um, of physicians for um, maternity care, um, is recommending that, that people who are pregnant and or breastfeeding should not uh, skip their opportunity to get the vaccine once available to them. So, okay, for pregnancy, breastfeeding, and what about trying to conceive? Again, there's been no indication that there's any kind of adverse event when it comes to that. So, so I have not seen something specifically about trying to conceive, but I would imagine that I would fall on the same criteria that ACOG would approve. But I, I think it's another medical body that actually does that kind of approval. Mm -hmm. If you've already had COVID-19, do you still need to be vaccinated? Yes, because we don't know the long-term antibody response in your, in your body. It looks like it wanes after around 90 days. So we recommend that when it's your time to come get the vaccine, whatever phase you fall into, regardless of whether you've had COVID or not, we recommend getting the vaccine. Um, and there has been no shown side effects or past history as a result of you having COVID um, and any interactions with the vaccine itself, because the vaccines generate such a large and a slightly different immune response, um, we want to make sure everyone's equally protected um, and, and at the best protection rate that's possible. Okay. So now we're going to finally get to, to these distribution phases um, right. in, in brief, because I know it's it's rather uh, involved, but but just in a, and again, keeping in mind that we have a national audience, um, let's let's go over the guidelines overall, and then you can just update us where Wake County stands as an example. Sure. So, we are following the state of North Carolina and then the ACIP um, CDC guidelines um, here in North Carolina, and very much across the board. They're they're all going to look very similar by each state. So, in Group One A, which is the phase that we're currently in. 
It's healthcare workers fighting COVID-19 and long-term care staff and residents. And that's regardless of underlying health conditions. It's healthcare workers caring for and working directly with patients. So that's not only nurses and physicians and pharmacists working in a hospital setting, it's also people doing the maintenance and health and, and cleanup. Um, it's people handling decedents um, and funeral homes, so medical examiner's office. So things like that where people are directly coming in contact with COVID patients. Um, then it's healthcare workers administering the vaccine. So myself and my staff, I'm a vaccinator. We Anyone who's operating the clinics themselves needs to be vaccinated to protect themselves um, because we're having people who come in who may be asymptomatic, COVID positive, um, and then all the long-term care staff and residents. In 1B, which is what we'll be moving to here on January 19th, group one in that is anyone 75 years or older, again, regardless of your health status or living situation. Group two is healthcare workers and frontline essential workers as defined by the ACIP and CDC who are 50 or older. And then group three is that same group of people, that same cohort, healthcare workers and frontline essential workers, but of any age, so under the age of 50. And then keeping in mind, as we move in these phases, anyone from group from the prior group can still get access to the vaccine in these later groups. So if you were one of those holdouts, you didn't want to get it, now all your coworkers have it, you, want, you feel comfortable getting the vaccine, you can still come schedule an appointment and so on and so forth. In group two, that's when we start talking about um, you're, an, you're an adult at high risk for exposure and at increased risk of severe illness. So group one is anyone 65 to 74, regardless of their health status or living situation. Group two is the 16 to 64 with those high risk medical conditions that we discussed earlier. Group three is anyone who is incarcerated or living in other close group living settings. So um, homeless shelter, jail, prison. And then group four is essential workers, um, not yet vaccinated. So those are workers who are in transportation and logistics, water and wastewater, food service, shelter and housing, construction, finance, IT, energy, legal, public safety, um, public health workers. In, in what phase did you say that was? That was group two. So group 1B is that ACIP recommendation is correctional officers, food and ag workers, U.S. Postal Service workers, manufacturers, public transit workers, grocery store, and then education. So that's a key thing that I left out for mentioning is that Group 1B or Phase 1B, Group 3, is our teachers and support child care staff and child care workers. So that's that's where all the teachers are going to fall in line um, with their opportunity to get vaccinated. So coming up very shortly. Mm-hmm. Now, their students are what make up Group 3. So that's college and university students. And then K through 12 students age 16 and over, um, I hope that we'll see a change in that approval to include all children, even under the age of 16. But right now, the vaccine is only approved. Pfizer vaccine is only approved for 16 and older. And then finally, in phase four, it's everyone who wants a safe and effective COVID-19 vaccine. So that's when the general population, um, it'll open up. I also think as we move through some of these phases, especially in phase two or the end of, of 1B here in North Carolina and in other states as well, you're going to see availability of the vaccine um, grow and you're going to see it at your primary care physician's office. You're going to see it at an urgent care. You're going to see it especially at your pharmacies. Pharmacies are going to be at the forefront of administering most of these vaccines to people just like they are with the flu vaccine um, across the country. Okay. All right. So so here's a side question. Um, many variants have developed since the pandemic began with 
with not too much note until the B117 was identified. It's more contagious when we say more. Scientists still aren't sure the exact percentages, claiming ranges from 70% to 20% more due to the virus harboring in the throat and nose, allowing it for it to be more easily expelled. Uh, it may be so- too soon to even talk about this, but is there any thought out there as to if the current COVID-19 vaccine will address this new variant as well? Sure. So I don't think there's anything definitive at this point. I have seen that Pfizer and Moderna are studying their um, emergency use authorized vaccines against this variant specifically. I know that Pfizer has partnered with um, the University of Texas, I forget which campus, to, to do this. And it looks like early data is showing that their vaccine is still safe and effective against this new variant. And that's because, and that's the beauty of an mRNA vaccine and this specific strain is that it still attaches using the spike proteins. And regardless of the mutation to the spike protein, the vaccine is sophisticated enough for it to teach your body that even though this one mutates, it still will not allow it to get you uh, sick. So the pathogen can still enter your body, but it still will generate that uh, immune response. So uh, I'm hopeful that these vaccine candidates will still be proven to be equally as effective um, on this new variant or any future variant, but I think in time we'll we'll be able to tell. Mm -hmm. That's a fingers crossed so we're almost done, but uh, let's, let's, let's go after now. Let's talk about, we've now all dutifully received our vaccine. Is it safe to go back in the water again? Meaning will the <laughs> vaccine end COVID-19? Sure. So to your, to your previous question, until we have achieved herd immunity, we still have to do our masks, follow the three W's, wash our hands, wear our masks, wait do the six feet um, plus rule. And that is because vaccine is, it's, we have not tested it yet to see if it kills asymptomatic spread of the virus. So you'll be protected. You won't, you won't become infectious or infected and, and show symptoms. But if you're asymptomatic, you know, to your point where it's in your nasal passage, it's in your throat, you can still, if you're not wearing your mask and you're on top of one another, you can still cough and spread it. So once we reach that herd immunity and why that's so important is that there's enough people who have protection against the infectious pathogen, whether it's COVID or something else that's vaccine preventable, from it being spread easily in community spread like you see now. So then you'll be able to do, go back to the very specific contact tracing and sort of root out where you got something. So until the time that we've, we achieve herd immunity, um, it's going to be very important that we follow the three W's and continue our, our vaccine campaign. So, you know, based on current allocations of doses, I, I predict um, that it's going to be just in line with what Dr. Fauci said. So the end of this year is when we can start seeing that maybe some of these restrictions, we can think about reducing some of these restrictions. Oh, towards the end of 2021 then. Yes. So we won't be wearing masks forever. <laughs> That's that's the hope, correct? Yeah. Unless you choose to wear a mask, then by all means. Yeah. Now, now, is this like the flu shot where we will have to get it every year or more like a traditional vaccine where it's a one-time thing and you're good to go? Sure. So at least for these first two candidates, it looks like you generate such a large immune response. And that's why a lot of people are saying they have severe, not severe, but they're having some more adverse events than the flu vaccine is because you're generating such a large immune response. So that fatigue, those chills, especially after the second dose, it's showing that you 
are going to have some kind of immunity for a longer period of time. Now, what to your point from earlier, that's where we haven't studied enough to show are we going to have to use a booster. Most vaccines require a booster, whether it's 10 years, 5 years, 3 years, I don't know. Um, and I think time will be able to tell us that. Um, but it, the good thing and the promise from this is that it does not look like it's going to be an annual vaccination um, because of how effective um, these two first candidates are. And it might change. So if it's mid-year and you get a vaccine candidate that's different from one of these, um, you might be on a different booster schedule than mine. So if I get Pfizer and they prove that Pfizer is you have to get it every 10 years, you might need and your Moderna's every eight years, you might be on a different schedule than the other person. Mm-hmm. So but time the, will tell there. So, but the good news is if you get it, you're, you're guaranteed you won't get COVID, although you might still spread it, et cetera. Correct. Exactly. Okay. All righty. And so, um, so, to close, if someone, after all this and other news reports, et cetera, if someone still can't decide if they should take the vaccine, what would you say to them? So uh, this has happened quite frequently at work. Um, so I ask, what what are your hesitations? What Why don't you want the, to receive the vaccine? So whatever that reason might be, um, you know, we could talk. A lot of it is side effects. So okay, I'm afraid, I don't want my arm to hurt, I have to work the next day. Okay, when you have, once you've received the vaccine, make sure you move it around, exercise your arm a little bit. Okay, it still hurts. Why don't you take two Tylenol, See, how, let's, let's go on that regimen every four to six hours and see how you feel. So a lot of this is side effect mitigation and just explaining how the vaccine works um, and what are the possible side effects. The other, the other flip side is what is the risk when I when I say this at work, what is the risk to you of receiving the vaccine versus getting COVID? So when you actually have someone answer that question and knowing that there is a real risk of morbidity and mortality, so death or severe, you know, going into the ICU and, and going on a ventilator versus having a dead arm and possibly feeling, um, you know, having a dead arm feeling or feeling out of it for a day. What what which would you rather do if you had to choose? And most of the time they choose the vaccine. And I've only had one person who's still hold out here who um, would still wants to wait and see. But when you give people those options and you actually talk through with them, what are the options? And you know, with this, you sort of know what you, what to expect. It's transparent. With with actually contracting COVID, you don't know what you're going to get. You could be asymptomatic. You could be fine. But you also could end up in the hospital and you could end up dying from it. And that's important to make sure that we're we're limiting that that outcome. Mm-hmm. Well, that's certainly food for thought to help yes. folks with the decision. Uh, if if people want more information, where should they go? So I recommend going to the CDC or their local state um, local and state websites uh, for more information. That seems to be the best location here in Wake County. Uh, or even if you're just interested in more information, um, they can visit covid19.wakegov.com. Well, thank you so much for being with us and parting your knowledge with us. I mean, it's, uh, it's, I think it's just going to be really helpful to a lot of folks. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Time for our nonprofit spotlight. Today, we are talking about Three Bluebirds Farm. According to their mission statement, the goal of Three Bluebirds Farm is to offer a person-centered home to adults with autism in which they can thrive and continue to grow and learn. 
The peaceful agricultural sitting will provide a well-structured residence with safety, cohesiveness, and serenity. Well-trained co-workers who are familiar with the residents' farmers' special needs will assist the farmers in learning and discovering new skills, encouraging them to reach to their fullest potential. In turn, the resident farmers will experience appropriate and rewarding work along with organized leisure time and social activities. They also inform the community and keep them aware, and they also have Camp Bluebird. This is for children on the autism spectrum, which they approach as a whole emotionally, socially, physically, and intellectually. For more info, visit 3bluebirdsfarm.org, and that's numerical 3. So the number 3, then bluebirdsfarm.org. Well, it's time to high-five and say goodbye. Check us out on all major platforms or at our website, triangle411.buzzsprout.com, to hear shows about social media tips, laughter from comedian Jeff Allen, and Oprah Forleo and other views on failure. I'm Mary Sprucker for Triangle 411. Today, dot, 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 be mindful.